With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So Magnus Carlsen is the world chess champion. He's also, by the way, been number one in the world for fantasy football, which is interesting to be number one in the world for two different things. So, But it shows if you're extremely skilled at one thing, you might be great at other things, be able to translate those skills over, which is a big part of what I write about in Skip the Line. But I had an interesting day today. I played Magnus Carlsen's father in a speed match on chess on a website that they partially own, the Carlsen family partially owns, chess24.com, and it's part of the Play Magnus group, which I just realized is a public company in Norway. They basically rolled up or bought a bunch of very good chess-related companies and combined them together and built a significant company. So we we played a, a match the 60-year-old Henrik Carlsen and me. Uh, Henrik is very strong. He's had a, a good teacher in in his son, I imagine, who's the, the world champion. It was tough games. And then um, the Scottish GM, Simon Williams, otherwise known as the Ginger GM, who's very popular on Twitch, did some commentary for the, all six games. And, and it was very funny to watch him do commentary on the games. But Henrik won four games to two. They were, it was a very good match. He's a very strong player. But I think I, I held my own. They were fun. And they were blitz games. There was some sloppiness on both sides. Blitz meaning they were very fast games. But uh, it was fun. And it was a prelude to talking about adult improvement and Henrik Carlsen's view from as a father of the growing world champion and also um, how they monetized the chess with their company, Play Magnus. And uh, we had a very interesting conversation. It was very, very fun. Very interesting conversation. I like to do things with the guests that are more than just podcast, kind of put some, I don't know, atmosphere around the the podcast. Then after the podcast, stay tuned because I want to kind of break down a little bit what Henrik was saying about adult improvement and kind of the, the raising of a world champion. And I I do this because I think a lot of people, you might have noticed this is a theme on a lot of the podcasts about how to be a peak performer. And everybody's trying, or perhaps everybody is trying or would like to be a peak performer in their life, whether it's uh, as an investor or an entrepreneur or an accountant or whatever, or as a doctor, or maybe with something you're more passionate about, like music or sports or poker or chess or writing, whatever it is. And I think the skills of peak performance, I'm always learning more. And I just think it's, it's, it's very important in today's day and age where you literally have to choose yourself. No one, 55 million people got laid off during the pandemic. No one is going to choose you. No one's going to be loyal. And so stick around after 
the podcast. Uh, Jay and I are going to talk about what we learned specifically from Henrik, a guy who's seen world championship level ability develop in front of his eyes. Again, it was fun. Congratulations to Henrik for winning our little match. And here's the interview with him. And then stay tuned for, I'm going to break down what I learned about Henrik's adult improvement techniques. The way you guys play is like really exciting. The, the time is also like very, very uh, close too. Yeah, they were very exciting games. And Henrik, I knew you played that G4 against Knight F6. So that's, <laughs> I did prepare that. And I knew you also played the, um, you know, after you played the H3 line instead of Bishop E2 and you played C4. So that's, that's the line I prepared. <laughs> yeah, and I understood. So I thought I'd better avoid that. And since it gave you the chance to outplay me positionally, and that was what I needed to avoid at any cost, basically. Yeah, and then in the um, we we had some good games. Like I was upset losing the queen in the third game, but I knew that there's counterplay. I would get a good pawn center on the king side. Yeah, but uh, when I blundered my queen, that that is really the only moment I'm uh, I'm a bit uh, concerned about during the match because uh, that was so unnecessary. I mean, I had long seen this combination with. Rook takes h6, queen g2, queen g7, check, and then take the rook on h6. But I couldn't do it as long as my king was on h2 because of knight g4, check. So yeah. I moved my king, and then I left my queen en prix after taking on h6. So uh, apart from that, I think uh, I, I was generally quite lucky in the match, but that was that was just not. Yeah, you know, it, it's a blitz match, but... Like in the, in the last game, I knew knight f7 taking the exchange was okay for me, but I knew you would get a lot of counterplay, and I was a little nervous about that. I, I hesitated before that, and you, you did cause trouble, and I got I got at the time I got nervous. Yeah, but then again, I blundered uh, because frankly I missed queen takes f8 because I could have taken on d1 instead, and then we're yes then it's more or less equal maybe or okay you have the h pawn you might be a little head there well you have the h pawn but i have a lot of con to play so i thought it was it was okay but then i blundered in fact and also exchanged down and then i just had to try to pose questions and you were low on time so i was a bit lucky there but that's a good way to put go it though pose that. questions and i think a lot of chess is not necessarily what's the best move but how many questions, even at the same time, can you pose your opponent? Because maybe one of them he won't answer correctly. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you've done a lot of interviews about your son, Magnus, the world champion. There's, there's documentaries about it. Uh, people could listen to those. You know, I might have some questions later. But I'm really curious like, about a lot of other things. For, the first thing is adult improvement. It seems to me... You've been continuing. I know you've also taken breaks, of course, because you've been busy with Magnus and your other activities. But you, you're serious about chess, it seems. You play a lot. I see you play a lot. And you must get some tips every now and then from the players you surround yourself with, including your son. How do you see, do you see that it's possible for someone um, older to improve at the game? Like how, I didn't even know you were like, a strong chess player until I, a few weeks ago when I when I was told that. But you're you're very strong. 
Well, my strength is main, mainly in five minutes. I think uh, my impression from these games is that I would be, you would be more and more of a favorite the more time uh, we had for the game. But but that's okay. Uh, and uh, when it comes to making progress, oh yes, I, I certainly think that we can make uh, progress. But uh, it's to me, it looks more difficult than uh, earlier in life. And uh, I haven't worked uh, that much on chess. I, I mainly play it uh, to enjoy myself, uh, frankly. Although there are a couple of things that I've done to, to improve. And uh, it basically, I think back in 2014 or so, uh, my uh, rating was uh, starting to to slide and I played tournaments just maybe once a year or every second year and that was not enough to uphold the classical uh, level. So that winter I did 15,000 tactics. 15,000? Yeah, and which meant a lot of them were repeated basically. It was on Chess 24 and I, was, I think there were a couple of thousand that came over and over again even though they were supposed to have like 20, uh, 15 or 20,000 20, different ones. But, uh, but in fact, the repetition was a very good thing, I, I think, because you started to recognize pattern more consistently. So I could immediately, after these months, I could immediately see that uh, in my blades, especially, but also in, in classical chess, I was much more tactically alert. So at my kind of combination of age and level and uh, lack of practice, that helped immensely. And then I felt if I sh wanted to continue to improve, one way was to start analyzing my own game. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that a lot, but to some extent. And then the third step is learning more, like opening lines, um, end games, etc. And uh, I've done a little bit on that, but not that much really. It's somehow, uh, somehow, uh, it hasn't been important enough for me to make progress. Like uh, I know you working more consistently on chess, and I would need to work slightly differently. Uh, uh, but you know, it's interesting. I think from an adult improvement standpoint, even in any area, let's talk about those first two points you made. That the first ways you're saying one was repetition then analyzing your games and then you know studying theory basically but the repetition part is very interesting because i think there's a lot of neuroscience around the benefits of repetition and and you even have acquired or your, your you know the play magnus group has acquired companies like chessable which focus on repetition in the learning of openings and other strategies and the way you study tactics is sometimes called uh, the Woodpecker Method after a book by Axel Smith. And the idea is study, like, let's say a thousand tactics and then study them again, maybe even faster. And the idea is it puts in the brain, it kind of solidifies the synaptic connections between the neurons and, you know, it helps with your pattern recognition, basically. And it's it's essential for learning. There's more and more research showing that it's essential for learning as opposed to just mindlessly studying tactics forever without the repetition. And have you noticed that the repetition helps? Absolutely. And uh, therefore, I felt that uh, doing these at Chess 24 at that time was ideal because the total number of puzzles were so that I got enough or a correct level of repetition. 
like normally if I spent one or two hours late at night doing uh, tactics, uh, I would have seen maybe after some time 40 or 50 or 60 percent of them before. Frankly, at the end, uh, I could often have seen 80 or 90 percent. And that meant that when I encountered similar tactics, not necessarily the same, but similar in uh, competition games, I would recognize them immediately. And I had a few examples of that already in the first Blitz tournament I played uh, over the board after, after this period. And that was so uh, rewarding in a way to see that, okay, I'm above 50, I've done some work, which was mainly fun anyway, and uh, it made a difference. What was the level of, like, were they complicated problems or, like, what was the time it took to solve each problem? They hit you with different levels of problems. I mean, some of them are quite difficult, but then you have a bit more time to, to respond and still get the good score. Uh, and some of them were just two movers, maybe. Uh, they were generally too difficult for me, so that I needed those 15,000 repetitions of a few thousand tactics, basically to improve my understanding, my knowledge, and, and uh, through repetition, uh, getting these patterns uh, uh, more established. Uh, by the end, I was ranked around number 50 or something at Chess24 on, on personal. I started at several thousands or several a couple of ten thousands, probably. So, but again, because I recognize them, they were still a bit difficult for me. But when you recognize it, it's. Uh, and I suspect that also applies to top players, basically. That some of the tactics are, are quite difficult for them as well, or extremely difficult. But they recognize something there, and that uh, that helps them. One of the things I notice in Magnus's play is his extreme creativity. And that, whether that happens in his positional planning or his tactical play, the creativity is, you, you, it's, it's hard not to just be astonished and admire how creative he is. And how much do you think, you've mentioned in prior interviews, his amazing memory, you know, how much of that creativity do you think, of course, it has natural talent associated with it, but also he must remember so many positions from perhaps repetition, studying these games, good memory, that he's able to draw from these patterns in his head and play the way he does. Well, frankly, my, my theory, and you, you can you know more about the science around it probably, and you can you can evaluate it. It's based on that you get good at what you practice a lot, and his approach to chess from like, let's say six until thirteen, he went from a beginner to a grandmaster. It was a lot about sitting with the wooden chessboard in front of him and then repeating things he had seen or coming up with ideas and kind of uh, using his curiosity and intuition to, to look for things, basically. So it was much less a journey from A to Z covering certain topics than it was uh, just. Uh, reading books uh, a bit uh, here and there, looking for something that uh, took his interest, or uh, imagining things at the chessboard. So I think, I would think, and from what I've heard from other top players, he, his approach during those years was slightly different from others, so that he practiced his intuition and creativity 
more than the technical aspect. Okay, later he became became very good in end games, but that might also have to do. You might not. I'm not sure. Even sure it's correct to see it as uh, an end game phenomenon. It's more that uh, end game positions where his strengths somehow and training uh, comes together. Uh, but okay, back to back to um, creativity. Uh, shortly, I think he is so used to through all these years to draw on everything that is in the kind of uh, the back of his mind and uh, the, the kind of uh, partly unconscious knowledge that you possess. And uh, when he's in the zone and he's not thinking about consequences during a game, he will be able to draw on nearly everything that he has seen or thought about because he's used to doing that. Right. While uh, if you are more kind of uh, A to Z schooled player, I think it's much more difficult to dig into those levels, kind of uh, semi-conscious levels. But that's just my theory that he has practiced so much what is needed to be creative at the board. And then uh, it's easier to reproduce that state and those efforts at the board. And I think you mentioned, you know, curiosity is is critically important. So whether it's business or chess or music, being being curious, I think, being constantly curious about what else can be done in the current situation, I think is a very helpful technique. And I and like you said, I think if someone's just schooled, you know, A through Z, they're not necessarily inclined to include that in their arsenal on a daily basis. No, so um, at least. Uh, it's uh, you know maybe the story about uh, there's a UK table tennis player who was supposed to be uniquely good standing close to the table, and then it turned out okay they had such a small room in his neighborhood where he practiced all those years, so he couldn't move, so he had to get good at close to the to the board, and uh, I think whether you are uh, forced to practice certain parts of your repertoire or you are doing it from inspiration. It's all about putting in all those hours uh, in the conscious effort in the area and you, and you become very good. Yeah, and I think the, the only way to do that really is to have a lot of passion for it as well because it's not like it's necessarily fun. You know, like when you know this and I'm sure Magnus knows this very well, when you lose, it's very unpleasant. And so you have to have fun through the unpleasantness somehow. You have to have passion through the unpleasantness. Yeah, and uh, uh, we've, of course, spent a lot of time thinking about the psychology of losing and winning because it's a, it's a difficult thing. You have these uh, two sides of the coin. One is that uh, it's a zero-sum game. And while humans uh, take losses generally harder than you appreciate, victories um, uh, so on one uh, on one side you want to have a strategy where you can appreciate your wins and not be psychologically affected too much about uh, from your losses so you kind of uh, at least in your youth uh, you, Magnus was thinking oh I won great or I lost okay I will try to win next my next game or or find some interesting positions in my next next game, uh, just moving on. 
Now, that's the one side. On the other hand, as a top player, I mean, Kasparov would have told you that, Magnus will tell you, I have to punish myself a bit when I lose because it shouldn't happen. And uh, uh, it has to be kind of hard on me. I have to be hard on myself so that uh, uh, the whole body and my own psychology learns a lesson. And uh, somehow you need to be able to combine those in a balanced way. While uh, on my side as a father, it's been all about kind of, okay, next game is the focus, not not the loss. While Magnus himself, he has had to also kind of uh, build enough resistance against losing that he has the right uh, psychological approach, uh, like typically in extremely important matches like World Championship matches. Yeah, and there's statistics out which show that Magnus, compared with other top players, tends to win after a loss much more frequently than others. And we don't know cause versus correlation. We don't know if it's because of the loss that he's bouncing back, but he does seem to, you know, have put in the work psychologically to to bounce back. Like, is there any specific kind of... That was very interesting what you said, that he has to absor- punish himself a little bit to in order to maybe bake into his brain whatever it was that caused the loss but what other techniques do you think one should use to bounce back from something so painful as as a loss regardless of the game or business as you're pointing out magnus has a good score typically the game following his losses and i'm as a father and chess friend extremely happy about that because to me that's such an important thing i mean if you can handle that well um, it must be a huge advantage now, why does it happen? My main theory for that is he's uh, losing some of his inhibitions while being focused at the same time. If you are leading a tournament or you are generally the one people want to beat, you're a bit uh, kind of in defense, or even though you don't want to be. While if you have lost the game and you want to hit back, you are uh, sufficiently focused after having uh, punished yourself a bit. But at the same time, the cost of another loss is not as high. So I think basically he's just playing uh, the odds game better after a loss, basically. Because most people, they, they want to kind of they, they withdraw after yeah. a loss a bit. I think Magnus's approach is basically uh, odds-wise uh, the right one there. You mentioned for your own improvement that studying your own games was very important. And I think this is critical. Like studying. And again, no matter what the field, chess happens to be the field we're talking about. And, and you know, your son's the world champion. You're a very strong player. But studying your own games, it seems like that mimics as closely as possible the scenario that was happening during the game. And, and it's while you're playing, that's the actual skill. Whatever it is you're doing while you're playing, that's the actual skill you want to get better as opposed to watching YouTube videos or reading books. Actually studying your, those and analyzing those games and coming up with more and more solutions seems very important. And you mentioned you, you do those for those, your own games. Do you do those for Blitz games? Because I do think that's how to make Blitz useful is studying those games. I've done it to some extent. But uh, frankly, I have a, a significant amount of stress uh, in connection with Magnus's chess. <laughs> so when I play myself, very often I just want to have fun. So I'm not clearly not putting in the hours and efforts I, I, I should generally uh, for instance, uh, studying my own games simply to improve. So I do it occasionally if I feel like or have a lot of energy. But uh, 
uh, I think for a player at my uh, level, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Well, it's also a bit individual because uh, Magnus, for instance, uh, we had this discussion with Kasparov nearly 20 years ago, basically, where he told us that Magnus should study his game properly. And Magnus didn't want to. And then after some time, I think he, Kasparov and his trainer, they accepted that well, Magnus absorbed the lessons from the game so quickly he had, that he, in particular, didn't have to spend so much time because through the games and right after, he immediately had uh, absorbed at least most of the, less, of the lessons that he could. And he was kind of ready to use it already the day after one of the subsequent games. So it's a bit individual, but certainly at my level, maybe at your level as well. I think you're positionally, you're a much stronger player than me. Um, I don't know. Well, I wanted to play five minutes. <laughs> well, well, one day we'll have a rematch and we'll see. <laughs> I, I, certainly. And uh, so at, at our level then, if I may, I think uh, it's uh, really a way to improve because especially in blitz games, you will discover so much that you have missed. And you, if you do this, uh, there will be patterns that you miss over and over again. And that's the way probably to pick them up and uh, having them as part of your repertoire. And again, it's a lot of it is related to the, the first thing, which is repetition. Because when you go over a game, you're basically repeating the game and finding all the deeper subtleties in it. So you're, you're feeding your pattern recognition library in your brain. I sometimes feel like as I get older, my memory gets worse. And then, and so the third part of your leg of improvement, which is, you know, studying openings or studying end games, this, this proves to be a bit of a challenge. Although I like, you know, Chessable, the, the company that's part of the play Magnus group, it, it uses repetition in its courses. And so I think it helps, but do you find your own memory has, has suffered as you aged? Clearly, probably more than I appreciate really, because yeah. Okay. I, I turn uh, 60 in March, but uh, my, memory has probably deteriorated more than what is normal uh, at my age. I mean, it, I can see such differences from 20, 30 years ago. It's a huge difference. And, and that's a bit frustrating. And it, as you point to, it makes it a bit more frustrating to do some of the very useful exercises on chessboard, for instance, because you have to repeat more times uh, than in the past, and still you mix up lines uh, more than you did in the past. But uh, on the other hand, uh, at our age, or my age, I'm much older than you. I think, uh, I'm, I'm 53, uh, we are, we, so I'm, I'm catching we are, up. We are quite good at synthesizing information. So, uh, And that's an essence also, I think. When you go through a lot of like opening lines, Maybe the most important thing is not even to remember all those lines, but to pick up a few good principles. Because again, I think you have to get up to a very high rating before it's that important to know all the lines. But studying lines will improve your basic understanding of chess. That's my, my view. I think that's a, a good point, is that for someone who's older and has troubles with memorizing the same way kids do, it might be that, oh, here's a collection of games that will be similar to games that I might play. And so I should learn the ideas in this collection of games as opposed to memorizing each game, which is, was much easier to do when, when younger. But at the same time, you know, I feel like, and I'm wondering what you think of this, what advantages 
does one have? Usually we don't speak of the advantages we get as we're older versus kids. And I feel like those advantages could be put into play in terms of adult improvement. Again, and I always have to repeat this, whether it's golf or music or investing or chess, you know, perhaps the fact that we can synthesize from multiple experiences better than kids, our supposed wisdom. Yeah, well, two things. One is that uh, it is supposed to depend from what I've read, where you are coming from. If you are played uh, or did something in your youth at a reasonably high level, getting back there is not so difficult. Uh, and typically, they say that while um, if you start playing the piano in your 40s or 50s, you will never have anywhere near the technique or speed uh, of, a, of a true professional. While if you were a true prof professional and just either kept it, kept it at some level or you uh, took it up at a later age, then you can become nearly at your youth level, even into your 60s or 70s. So it, for chess, it probably depends a bit whether you, how much chess you did in your youth. Uh, and uh, if you did a lot, I think uh, it's probably easier to, to, because then a lot of the patterns are, are there. You just need to, to make them more useful in a way. While uh, uh, the other point I wanted to make is that uh, it was uh, a bit of uh, uh, it was a bit uh, comforting to read a, a communist article many 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 years ago of how the brain changed, typically already in your thirties, and how the part that picked up details or data uh, was reduced, while the synthesizing part grew the area of the brain used for synthesizing so and that's why i think uh, older people like me they sometimes feel that okay i don't know that much details but uh, i have a little bit of wisdom that i didn't have at 30 or 40 and uh, somehow we need to be able to exploit that in chess and uh, i think uh, a lot of what we've talked about uh, whether it's repeating opening lines tactics or uh, playing a lot of minute, five minutes game and uh, looking at least quickly through your own games to, to pick up some of the, the patterns. Uh, maybe we are still quite good at synthesizing certain pieces of information that can take us quite a long way yet, I think. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts, 
It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm thirty five. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. 
Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it, hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I've heard you say this in an interview is that often Magnus will, when maybe it's, I forget if you mentioned if it was between rounds or sometimes between the tournament, he would focus on other things that he loved as well. So for instance, he's been number one in the world in his, in fantasy football at different points. And it's kind of amazing to be number one in the world for two completely different activities. And so do you think it's natural to Magnus to be so great at things he tries, or is it, is there meta learning happening? Like the fact that he knew the tools to be number one in one field allowed him to speak the language of being number one in another field. I wouldn't go as far as uh, the latter conclusion, but uh, clearly his analytical training and his analytical uh, proclivities, or what you call it, uh, from young age, uh, has helped him also in in uh, other areas like fantasy football or poker. Or I don't think uh, it's basically the knowledge about how to become a top chess player that has helped him. It's more the training that he has had to get good at chess also is beneficial in some specific areas where you are collecting a lot of data and it's not all about formulas. You have to kind of feel your way to some of the, the conclusions uh, a bit intuitively like you do in chess based on some semi-conscious knowledge. Yeah, and also he, he spent a lot of time on fantasy football, frankly. And uh, uh, I think that's important for him specifically. It might not be as useful for other top players, but basically Magnus thinks about chess so much and more or less constantly that for him, between tournaments, it's a lot about trying to forget chess occasionally. That's interesting. You guys also have been very successful, more successful than any prior group in chess, in monetizing chess. I mean, it's not just about winning prizes in chess tournaments. You have the Play Magnus group. It's it's public on the Norwegian stock exchange. You, you own a variety of companies like chess24.com, where you and I just played uh, a match of chess. And chessable.com, uh, which is a, a great place for, for courses. I think you own Aim Chess. Do you own New in Chess? I forget. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're like a chess empire. Quietly, oh, I realize many of my favorite chess-related companies you guys own. And it's, it's again, it's, it's a public stock. It's, it's, uh, the value is uh, over $100 million. What What got you thinking and inspired to kind of go this route in the, in the business route? Was that, was that your doing or was, was what happened? Well, first I should point out that our ownership of, uh, of these companies are less than 10% now. So, but, but yes, we are a substantial owner. And I think it's basically a combination of several lucky factors. Uh, I think the chess world 
and chess industry was was ready for some significant changes. And then uh, uh, this online boom and and uh, Queen's Gambit boom uh, were clearly helpful to some of the, the companies that we are involved with. But the most important thing is that we met some very capable and uh, hardworking people. We are fortunate enough to have uh, a management group and a lot of talent throughout these companies. That makes all the difference. And of course, for Magnus, uh, his main task is basically to perform and deliver results as a chess player. But uh, clearly, now that uh, we, we played on the new play zone today, so yes. when the new play zone is, is ready, I mean, he, he's looking forward to play there more as well. I mean, to have a home as a blitz and uh, bullet um, rapid player. It's a combination of a lot of factors. Uh, Magnus was open to doing this, and of course, I've also been open to doing this, but we've had so much help from external factors and uh, all these capable people that uh, we have been fortunate enough to be involved with. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I could see in the strategy, there's a lot of sophistication. Often entrepreneurs, they feel they have to build everything when they first become an entrepreneur. I have to build this, I have to build this. But you've been doing a good strategy of strategically buying companies that are the best in class for what they do and then kind of rolling them up and integrating them into the bigger company. And that strategy that was not obvious to me, for instance, when I was first starting out in business, it was only later on I realized the, the beauty of that kind of strategy. And, and you guys are doing it very well. Yeah, again, uh, we, are, we have capable people uh, doing this and helping out with this. And uh, it, it, it also helps, of course, that Magnus has been able to stay on top for many, many years now. So that we have a good name, uh, attracting talents and uh, maybe also making it easier to uh, reach commercial deals with some of these uh, best in their uh, kind of area companies that we've uh, managed to acquire. Are you worried? Like, let's say, you know, Magnus has a world championship match coming up. Do you ever get worried that, you know, he might, when does he get worried that, oh no, I'm in my thirties, the next generation, now these young kids, I can't take it anymore. These kids are machines. When does he start saying that? Well, uh, I think uh, it was this story. Maybe it circulated mainly in Norwegian press, chess press, but uh, uh, there was this Norwegian journalist that asked him uh, nearly 10 years ago that, or eight years ago or something, that, well, man, you know, okay, now you are on top, but at some point there will be some younger player uh, catching up with you. And I instructed him, what? Why? And so he didn't uh, accept that at the time, basically, that uh, his time some, at some point could be over. And uh, might read into that what you want, but it's a good self preserving uh, yeah. trait, I think, to have to, to have that kind of confidence uh, or show that kind of confidence. Now, of course, now that he's in his 30s and he's had more ups and downs the last six years than, uh, for instance, from 2012 to 15. So uh, he understands that uh, it will get harder and harder to stay on top. But uh, he still thinks he can do it. So... <laughs> But I mean, I think this, his, uh, his optimistic still uh, for the match, for the year, and maybe also the years to come. And you know, this goes along with what we were saying initially about the the 
different aspects of adult improvement. Like I notice in a lot of Magnus's games, he often seems to be not going for the best theoretical position, but maybe even a position that's equal or one where he might even be, according to the computer, tiny, tiny bit down, but he's more comfortable with. He's much more familiar with the ideas while all the other opponents might be just booked up, super booked up on theory. It seems like he has a different approach to the game that he's introduced into the game. Yeah, I think you're right. Although he has been quite well prepared also for the last couple of years. So maybe his, his game has changed slightly again compared to typically the early 20s, his early 20s and mid-20s, which you refer to. But it's, uh, it's clearly a strategy. It has been a strategy and it's still a strategy that he strives for position, positions that he likes, where he sees opportunities. And uh, uh, I think very often, uh, if you look at the computer evaluation, it doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, you have, for instance, uh, people uh, look at end games and they say, oh, it's 0-0, zero, zero. it's going to be a draw. No, come on. Maybe one of the, of the uh, players have a tightrope and the other has a wide avenue. Mm. So, uh, of course, there's a big chance that the, the guy on the avenue will, will win. And um, also sometimes uh, evaluations change. So, I mean, that's probably some of the highlights of, uh, of uh, Magnus' career from my point of view, when he is uh, showing the computer that it's wrong. It's typically because the computer hasn't had enough power or time, etc. of course. But like you had one of these games against Vishyanam, where he had this uh, night, H3, knight, G5, and after queen, H6. And the computer didn't understand it immediately. Mm. And then he did it, and then, oh, okay, now, now I see what you're doing. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, it made sense. That's very interesting. And uh, does he ever look at your games and, and make fun of them? Yeah, and I like that. In fact, he says things like, I don't, he doesn't know anyone spending so much time on chess as me and playing so poorly. <laughs> and I, I guess he wouldn't say that if he really meant it. I, 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 I think so. And he basically he thinks that uh, my tactics are not so bad, but uh, uh, positional understanding and the king safety and these kind of things is he, just kind of what's going on. <laughs> so I think he's just accepted that that I'm at uh, this level where. Uh, some of, some of it looks like chess, but then there are the parts that doesn't really resemble chess at all from his perspective. What was it like for you when you made the decision, okay, this is going to be my career. I'm going to support Magnus's efforts and see how far we can take this. And I'm, I'm sure you've been asked this a lot. I, I apologize, but uh, you know, for my audience, this is, this is new. And, and, and your style of parenting obviously has been very successful, but this was a big decision for you. I'm not sure it was because uh, it was an opportunity to do something I enjoyed so much. Mm. And uh, while I did uh, decently in some jobs in the past, uh, uh, in the oil industry and as a consultant, being able to work with Magnus, who was uh, excelling in his field, that was so special, basically. And uh, if I in any way could help him realize his talent and 
make uh, spectators occasionally happy, etc. It made so much sense. You have to also think that uh, as Norwegians, both my wife and I coming from middle class families, this was the way to raise children in, in Norway, basically, allowing them to pursue their passions. You're not so worried about their economic future because Norway is egalitarian society with a strong social network, etc. So, so it all came together in a way that uh, made sense. And uh, again, as a passionate chess amateur, uh, it was not very difficult to try to help Magnus uh, instead of uh, doing something relatively mediocre in other areas. So in the U.S., it's hard to just think about your passions, or maybe it's not. But you know, here it's like a, a fight for survival in many ways because it's not an egalitarian society. And I wonder what you would say to an adult, again, someone closer to our age, who's tired of doing their daily grind every day, how could they pursue or even know what their passions are? And I know this is a big question, but I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. No, I mean, uh, I couldn't even see, uh, for some years, I couldn't even see Magnus's talent as a chess player. And, and that was a good thing because I didn't push him. When he started taking it seriously himself at seven and a half or eight years, uh, it was kind of his chess. Uh, so I didn't interfere that much, which could have happened uh, if I had understood earlier. But again, apart from that, it's so difficult to uh, assess the talents and opportunities of other people. I'm just uh, happy that we were fortunate to grow up in Norway and things came together and Magnus could pursue his career and it all went well, at least from a chess standpoint. So I, I wish people find passion. And I think if you have a job that you don't like in particular, maybe still having a, a hobby that you're passionate about can be so important. Did, did Magnus ever rebel as a kid? Did he ever say, ah, I'm not doing this anymore? <laughs> I'm 11 years old. I'm going to go out and play soccer or football. No, but uh, that, that was the beauty of it. He's never been forced to do anything in chess. Anything. It all, he, he was the one pushing. In fact, at one point, he wanted to play three tournaments in a row uh, in, the, in the winter at 11 or 12 or something, or at 13 or 14. And my, my wife and I say, yeah, but then you're going to be away from school for like two months, two and a half months. No, it's too much. Uh, you, uh, I think you, we think you should drop that uh, middle tournament and, and uh, be in school for a few weeks. And he was so angry with us <laughs> because for once he was not uh, allowed to prioritize his, his chest. Basically, he's been all, always been pushing. It wouldn't work otherwise, I think. On the, the couple of occasions where I have maybe thought uh, that he was on the wrong track, Fortunately, I kept my mouth shut and uh, he, he proved my thoughts wrong anyway. It's his chess career and it, it, it's always been his passion. If he didn't want to play chess anymore at 12 or 14 or 16 or whenever, that was his choice, totally. That's a great way to look at it. We didn't have to uh, burn any bridges, basically. You know what's always amazing to me looking at Magnus and also the group of top players is that they sort of grew up together. I mean, even when he was 11, 12, he was playing in 
tournaments with all the same people he's playing now in world championship matches against. And I wonder what that's like to spend most of your life with the same cohort that's like growing up together and getting better and better. And now they're all, they're the top 10 in the world or top 20 in the world. Like, is he, is he friends with them? Does he call them up at night and say, Hey, how's it going? Well, uh, uh, if you look at the, the players from born in 1990, to, to, uh, I think I said already in 2001 or, two, or 2002, that this must be the strongest vintage ever, even maybe by far. And yeah, okay, you have uh, Karyakin, Magnus, Lagrave, you have David Hovel, you have Andrekin, Nepomnishi, Karulin, you have, and you have a lot of additional grandmasters, strong grandmasters, uh, born in the same year. Such a, such a strong year. I think you have to ask some of the others, because for Magnus, it basically worked out. I mean, if you are successful, it's not that difficult in the, in the sense that uh, you don't experience the same problems that people do who have less success, uh, basically. So I think when Magnus first played in the world, uh, the European and the world youth in 2002, in the European youth, he lost against Nepomnishi and also I think the two other Russians, in fact. And then he did much better in the world under 12 uh, a month later and in the end he was second on the same number of points as, as Nepomnishi as they had drawn their individual game but uh, Nepomnishi had the better tiebreak quality points and uh, to him this was just such an interesting journey that uh, prior to playing abroad he had read some about some uh, of his contemporary and now he, he could suddenly play them and test the level and then I think he enjoys uh, the fact, basically just enjoys the fact that there are a lot of the same players uh, among the world stars that he grew up playing uh, occasionally. For me, it's something special when uh, when he plays the Pondish in a world championship match. I mean, I, I can still remember them playing billiard, billiard or uh, maybe even some tennis and talking a bit, uh, maybe 20 years ago. And now the, the boys are... They are grown up and ready for the title match. Do you know all their parents? <laughs> uh, not very well. Uh, spoken a bit to some of them, but not that much. And frankly, Magnus didn't go to that many youth tournaments. He played uh, both European and World Youth in 2002 and 2003. But apart from that, it's not been uh, much really. And as for you and your continuing improvement in chess, I understand you, you enjoy playing for fun, but obviously you like to win. I, I know all too well now. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to, you, you probably continue to do tactics. Like what, what would you say even to have maintenance of your abilities? What work do you do to keep going, perhaps to keep improving? I think you need to play a lot to do maintenance. To keep improving, uh, I have to put in more of the, the slightly harder work of uh, going through my own games, uh, looking through and repeating opening line, and doing tactics occasionally. And now I have to do all three of this because uh, I have to be ready for our rematch at some time. I, I know. I, I, I'm going to have to do... I've been using chessable and read mode, not which is not the repetition aspect, and I have to start doing that more to to stay up on, on the openings <laughs> and uh, 15,000 tactics. That's, 
that's a lot to that's a lot to do. I'm gonna have to start. I I do about I do about forty or fifty a day. Uh, I usually do it from the the Polgar book of of tactics. You know his big book chess, uh, Laszlo Polgar's book, and uh, I, I should put in the quantity as well. And 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 I like the woodpecker method, the repetition as well. So you're you're good tactically. I and you cause you caused me a lot of trouble. You made me very nervous. I was <laughs> <Thank> shaking. <you. laughs> and, that was uh, great fun. Yeah, no, it was great fun. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and you're, you're welcome anytime. And I look forward to the rematch, but also good luck uh, next month in the, or whatever it is. I think it's next month, the world championship match with, with Magnus and everything you're doing with the play Magnus group is great. Like chess 24 is a great site. Chessable, great site. Aim chess is a great site. New and chess is a, a classic magazine that, that is now under your umbrella. Uh, the play Magnus trainer. I, I, I have that on my phone. It's very, it's very interesting. The exercises you, you do there. Some of them are like almost reflex kind of exercises, which I find very interesting. And, uh, what other companies are under your umbrella? I, I forget all of them. Well, uh, we have iChess. Ah, uh, yeah, right. And, iChess. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the, the play Magnus apps, of course. Yeah. The U S, uh, Chess, uh, the Silver Knights Academy. Okay. Uh, and have we forgot anyone? Well, in such case, uh, my friends in the Playmines group have to forgive me. I, we mentioned a lot anyway. And you know, I was I thought of I thought of one idea for you guys, which is every score sheet in the upcoming World Championship match. I'm not sure how familiar you are. I very, it's hard to get familiar with this, but the the, the whole NFT world inside the crypto world, you should take every score sheet and make that an NFT that you sell online. And it's very interesting. Don't tell, anyone. Be... Don't tell anyone. Oh, okay. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a fun idea. Nah. So uh, I would I would be first in line to, to buy one of those score sheets. And then of course you make more money as people resell them later, as opposed to when an artist sells a painting, you don't make any additional money. But this is, has some interesting features and it can maybe even if you buy such an NFT, it could provide access to other parts of the Play Magnus group that people might not be aware of. So it's a, an NFT is almost like a ticket as well. So it's it's interesting from a business point of view. Yeah, I forgot every man chess. By the way, uh, now I recall. Ah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, NFT, NFTs. I really have to figure that out because uh, these some of these new concepts are are difficult to understand fully, but. Uh, uh, when we were presented, like with the NFT trophy after the Championship Tour, uh, th there's something to it. I mean, it, it was quite fascinating. Yeah, and that's as a trophy, but even as like a score sheet, those are yeah. fascinating. I think, and yeah. maybe with Magnus's commentary on it or something like that, or I don't know. There's something about it that seems yeah. to be very appealing from an NFT point of view, both as art and both as access to other parts of the Play Magnus Empire. So yeah. that, that could be interesting. Yeah, if you ever want a tutorial on that, I'm happy to, to set that up. But again, uh, once again, thank you for the match. It was so much fun. I was, I was very nervous beforehand and it was, it was good fun games. <laughs> and you play very well and, and won the match <laughs> four to two, fair and square. So definitely rematches on the cards, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to get better. I'm gonna, well, after, after I do 15,000 tactics, I'll, I'll call you up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deal. It was such a pleasure to play with you and, and talk to you. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you. 
Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So that was interesting. I mean, I really thought, first off, having played Henrik, and it sounds like he, he did do some studying as an adult a few years ago in order to get to the level he's currently at. He's a very, very strong player. What was very interesting to me was two learning techniques he spoke about, which I think is critical no matter what you're interested, whether you're interested in music, investing, entrepreneurship. And and the reason why people don't do these things is they're more difficult than it seems. So number one is do or study what you love, your, your, your passion, but use repetition. So for instance, if you play the piano, obviously two types of things people do use repetition on if they play a musical instrument like the piano. One is they repeat their scales, so they learn the chords and the scales and so on. The other is, you know, they have different ways of repeating and practicing over and over again the pieces they would like to play. In chess, a lot of people just play game after game or study game after game, but they don't 
use repetition at all. They just study new puzzles, new games, and so on. But it's very important to kind of bake into your brain patterns. It's not good enough just to exercise the muscle that solves problems. You have to be able to catalog problems. So for instance, I remember when I was first starting as an investor, if a stock dropped, I would get scared to death. If a stock dropped really fast, I would get scared to death. And it was only by seeing situation after situation when a stock drops, I, st I started to see, oh, whenever it drops very fast, it tends to bounce back. And that was a pattern that I then used software. I wrote some software to test my theory and, it, and I built a whole trading system around this and uh, uh, started a hedge fund based on that and later on a fund of hedge funds. But by studying the similar situations, not the exact same situation, but similar situations over and over and over again, you start to build an intuitive feel so that when you see a new situation, you say to yourself, oh, this pattern, this reminds me of another pattern that I've looked at. Same thing happens in chess. If you study, let's say, a tactical puzzle over and uh, tactical puzzles over and over, and then you repeat them. Let's say, as Henrik said, he would study a thousand puzzles and then he would repeat them. So he wouldn't always remember the answer, but he would start to build an intuition in his brain on typical patterns that he saw. So if you want to be a mystery writer, you read a ton of mysteries and maybe they're all kind of detective mysteries. And then when you're writing your own detective mystery, you run into a problem, you're stuck. And you say to yourself, okay, well, in this type of situation, I've often have seen the Elmore Leonard or the great mystery writers out there uh, do X, Y, and Z. So I'm gonna try to do something similar to that because I know it will be good. There's something very interesting about patterns in that the, the human brain, the human brain wants shortcuts. The human brain is not a computer. It can't calculate a thousand moves ahead. It can't see every possible outcome for every thing it does. So it wants to say, hmm, this, you know, this is a 200,000 year old thing. Oh, I'm in uh, this area of the jungle I don't know about, and I hear a rustling, and the rustling sounds like something I might have heard before. Oh no, it's a lion in the bush. Or maybe the, the, the hunter picks up some fruit, and it, it, it's, like, it's about to bite the fruit, and it's like, you know what? This is similar to another kind of fruit I saw someone eat, and then they died, so it's poison. So the human brain wants shortcuts. It doesn't want to have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, every time. And I know for my own adult improvement, like whether it's writing, chess, or investing, or poker, is that it's very important to study similar types of situations over and over again so you build the intuition. Don't just solve random problems all over the place. That will exercise your ability to think and solve puzzles but or solve problems, but it won't teach you the patterns that the brain really needs to have to take shortcuts in whatever area it is you're trying to get better at. The other thing is, which is very important, Henrik said, and he said he's not so good at this, but I don't know if I believe him. Henrik said, uh, study your own games. And in particular, study your own losses. That applies to investing. So investing, you could have a day that was good or you could have a day that was bad. You lost money. Or it could happen with entrepreneurship. Uh, many people start companies and they fail. And in fact, I think not only should you study your own losses, you should study other people's, but you'll definitely learn the most from your own losses. And I think people don't do this. It, it's hard to admit. People make excuses like, oh, this business didn't work out because my business partner screwed me. Or this business didn't work out because the customer went out of business. Well, you can't make excuses. You lost. And it's critical 
to do an autopsy on every aspect of the loss. Why did you pick that business partner? Why didn't you notice they were screwing you? Why did you let most of your business be dominated by this one customer? Why did I make that particular chess move when I knew that in this type of position, this type of chess move is made? Why did I do that chord change in a piano piece I was riffing on when I knew that doing this other chord change a thousand times I've seen it and it's much more, makes a much better piece of art and, and on and on. But it's hard to analyze your losses again because of excuses. Like if I lose a chess game, I want to say to myself, no, that feels so bad. I just want to go on and play another game and win. So I don't feel so bad anymore. But here's how you have to think of your losses and losses in life in general. This even includes in personal relationships. A loss is like a roadmap of where you are weak. And it's the only roadmap you're ever going to get of certain weaknesses. Every time you lose, whether again, whether it's a day of investing, a relationship, a business, or a chess game, these are very specific roadmaps to things you don't know or things you're not good at. No matter how many excuses you have, oh, I just made a mistake. It was, I will never make that mistake again. Maybe you won't, but I have found... Like I, I played in my first tournament in 24 years, uh, about a weekend ago, and I have another one coming up in two weeks. I played eight games. They did not go very well. Many skill sets I have lost about over the board, slow playing. But what I've been doing is I've been going over these games one at a time, eight games. It's been about a week. I've only gone over two games, and that's a couple hours a day of examining these games. I have my notes on game number one, are about, I don't know, 10 to 15 pages. And not only that, I went over them with a, a coach, a, a grandmaster named Jesse Cry, who's, who's a very good grandmaster and a very good teacher. Sometimes we'll spend an hour or so going over one of these games and we'll only go over the first eight moves because there's so many things where I could possibly be better. And examining these and doing an autopsy on your losses. If I, if I had won the game, I wouldn't know where I had played poorly. But when I lose the game, it's very clear I played poorly somewhere. So doing an autopsy on that and really studying and examining both the, the moves, the psychology, like what was I thinking when I did that? What are other similar games that have been played? And what did, what did Magnus Carlsen play, for instance, when he was in a similar situation? Studying those games, Sometimes the guy I'm training with, Jesse, he, we, we would set up the position and he would say, okay, play black. Now, okay, play white. And we would go back and forth. So I would try to learn the ideas and plans from each side. And I thought I knew them. I thought, oh, I was going to win this game. I just made a blunder or I wasn't used to playing a slower game. But there's always, the only way to get better is to practice what it is what, when you were doing the thing you want to get better at. So I was playing so practice simulating playing, but instead of losing, try not to lose. Try to understand what it was that made you lose. And I used to do this with investing quite a bit, particularly when I started to deal with the psychology of losing. I used to hate losing money. Any, I still hate losing money. And as Henrik said, it's important for even his son, Magnus, to still hate losing. Not be a sore loser, but to feel the pain so he knows to punish himself in a sense he knows that he needs to learn from this and not just ignore the loss. And you only get that when you feel the pain of loss. So the pain of loss, as unpleasant as it is, if you're trying to get good at something that's worthwhile, that pain is worthwhile and that's how you get better. So I can't stress enough, whatever it is you're trying to learn. When I would do comedy, 
when I did stand-up comedy and I still occasionally do it, but not as much as I did for, from 2015 to early 2021, I would videotape myself doing comedy. I would, I would think to myself, oh, I did great tonight uh, or I did horribly tonight. And I would watch the video and I could see, oh no, I should have made the joke a half a second faster or I should have paused a half a second more to get the, let the punchline sink in. Or I had such a great opportunity to do some improvisation right there and I didn't do it. And I would write down notes for each video so I would learn, so I could read them later and learn. And, and again, build intuition in situations that I wasn't so good at. And the, the, great, the greatest comedians out there, what would they tell me about when I asked, how do you get better? Take videos of your comedy events, take videos of yourself doing stand-up comedy, do an autopsy of them, and figure out how you would do better, write it down, then improve, and, and so on. Videotape all of your sets and, and write them down, write, write down your, your notes and analysis and, and move on. And I have to say, in almost anything in life that I've gotten better at, the most painful situations are the most valuable ones. Even relationships. I have a relationship that didn't work out. I could moan and groan and get depressed and do all sorts of crazy things. Or I could say, well, what went wrong? Why didn't I see these aspects? Or how didn't I treat this person as well? Or how didn't she treat me as well? And, and, and why did I allow that to happen? And, and on and on. You need to, again, always think of, don't ignore the pain of a loss, but think of a loss as a roadmap to your improvement. We only live one life, so we might as well improve in everything we love doing. I love having relationships. I love doing stand-up comedy. I love business and investing and entrepreneurship. I love, love playing chess since I was a young person. And I love writing. With my writing, I always, right now I'm in a period where I'm looking back at things I wrote 10 years ago when I was already publishing lots of books, having lots of success as a writer, making money as a writer. And it's always interesting for me to see now how I would do, how I would do it better, particularly books where I, I think I didn't do as well as I could have. So it's just a fascinating thing. I think Henrik's very right about that. Uh, uh, solve problems, but repeat problems. That's number one. Repetition is very important. And number two, sometimes when I was, when I, and I'm a writer still, but sometimes I would write articles and then I would write the exact same article with the same ideas over again, just to see how I would do it differently. And that was because I wanted to improve or I would try writing over and over again an article in the second person. Then the next article I'll write in the second person. The second person means I use the form you instead of I. So you woke up today, you turned on the coffee machine, you, you started looking at the stock market and, you were, and, and it was terrifying. And, and honestly, you use the word you and it creates a weird type of effect. That's not the point here. The point is that I would try to write many articles in a row in the second person just to learn that form. And if you're interested in that, uh, Chunk Palahniuk, the author of Fight Club and I, we've talked about this on our various podcasts together. And then learning from your losses. I can't stress that enough. For 24 years, I don't know what the heck I was thinking. I would just play blitz chess online and I never studied my losses. And Jesse, uh, Grandmaster, uh, the, who's giving me uh, uh, lessons right now, Jesse Cry, he would tell me, you have to analyze your losses. You have to analyze your games. And so now that's all we do. That's the entire content of our lessons is, and, and again, I have eight games to analyze. We've been spending almost a week a game. I take three lessons a week and I study several hours a day and I write, write notes down. I have tens of pages of notes on one single game. And 
that's how much you could learn from losses. And I, I, as a result of doing that, I could see the results right away when I play blitz chess. The slow chess is making me better at blitz chess because I'm analyzing many more, I'm building many more possible ideas in my head by seeing all the possibilities in the games that I lose. And again, if you remember one thing from this, your losses in life are the roadmaps to your future victories. Your losses are the roadmaps to your improvement. And why not improve? See, I have questions. I feel like, you know, we have interview, you know, you have interview Hendrik, like just earlier, and Judith. I I get one thing uh, in common in both episodes is that the, the visualizations of, uh, of, of learning. He also talked about, I remember he talked about Magnus Carlsen just sit in front of an empty board. And then he's, he also talked about be curious about, uh, he also talked about be curious. I'm wondering if you actually done that uh, for your tournament. No, that's a good point. Well, curiosity, yes. And that's that's yeah. almost the subject of an entire other podcast because curiosity in general, like right. a lot of people think, and let's just talk about this in terms of education. A lot of people think, okay, if I major in biology, I'm going to know biology. And the answer is yes and no. You'll And even if you get a master's degree, because I'm going to distinguish a master's degree from being like a PhD or an entrepreneur in biology, science or whatever. But if all you do is take courses, all you'll know well is what they teach in courses. And what Henrik calls curiosity, for, for, for a mini second, I'm going to call it discovery. Because I think if you're not discovering things, you're not fully learning. Because knowledge is already is a commodity. It's at our fingertips. Google, if I don't know the elements of the periodic table, I could just ask Google. But if I want to know, you know sodium mixed with chloride forms salt, you know, I need to now, I need to discover that. It's not as easy to just look up the elements on uh, the periodic table. And in, in chess, it's, it's, there was one game in this past tournament where I could tell, there's only one game out of, the, out of the eight that I lost immediately, meaning I lost it in the opening because the kid uh, I was playing, the man I was playing had studied that particular opening more than I had and he memorized it better than I had and I completely lost. And it would be good if I had been able to discover, even when I was knew I was going to be in trouble, discover new ways to play based on my understanding of that sort of position. Or, or let's say something happens in the investment world where I don't know what's going on. If I could discover my personal approach, oh, this is what I do in this type of investing. And I, and I study that approach and I discover what my unique voice is in investing or in writing or in business, then I think that's what creates the real champions is that like take, take Serena Williams with tennis. It's not that she became a great tennis player. It's that she changed tennis. She was so good that she moved the frontier of how we define tennis. Now I'm not going to do that with biology or chess or investing or whatever, but I can do it for myself. I can move the frontier of what it means for James to be a good chess player or a good investor or a good entrepreneur or a good writer by discovering what new things I want to say and new ways I want to say it. And when I say the word say, that could mean as an entrepreneur, it could mean as a chess player or as a musician, whatever it is we love, we're saying things with that domain. So discovery, and you do, you discover things with curiosity. Well, this person it seems like this, everybody plays this move, but what happens if you play this move? Oh, it's not so good. 
but it's tricky. So maybe it'll be my discovery that I'll play this and other people won't know how to deal with it. And that'll start to move the needle on how I'm discovering myself in this area. Or, oh, uh, you're supposed to write a book this way. Well, what if I write it this way? Maybe it's not the classic or traditional way, but uh, it's, it's going to be my way of doing things. So I, for instance, when I started writing about businesses in 2010, I mean, I was writing about business before, but I was writing about it in a very standard way. And then I started writing about business by saying, you know what? First thing I want to say is I went broke several times. So I've been a horrible business person. I've been a horrible investor and I was so depressed. I lost all my money and I was so depressed that I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to, how to survive. And I even was suicidal. Well, I would say now this is a common way for business self-help authors to write. I don't consider myself a self-help author, but I see a lot of other authors writing this way. And I feel for me though, this was my discovery by combining sort of the style of writing I really enjoyed to read and write and my own honesty and analysis of my prior situations, plus tradition, combine that with traditional business writing. So I would be very offbeat. Like people would read my articles, like on TechCrunch, for instance, and the, the first comment would be, what the hell did I just read? Because I had my own voice. And again, I think people, you know, the world grows up and people start to, to share and, and do also imitate the style or mimic the styles that they like. And a lot of people like that style of writing. So it's almost like I, you have to rediscover yourself continuously to stay ahead. But, um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but curiosity and discovery is an important part of analyzing your losses also. Yeah, but do you, the other, the other question is like, do you visualize, do you, do you practice visualizations? Well, because like, well, that's what Judy Pogat said right? when he was younger, he would just play blind chess. Yeah, so it's funny. The way I do it is when I solve problems, you have to visualize sometimes several moves ahead. But I think practicing blindfold chess and that kind of visualization, I probably should do more of. So I, I, I don't do it as much as I should. Although I do practice when I look at a book, I try not to set up a board. But since I want to learn the contents of the book, sometimes I can't see too far ahead by myself. So I, I have to set up the board. Yeah, but because like, well, you you just you did say about you know repetitions help. You know, you want to uh, you want to practice the muscle, but but you know sometimes you want to. I felt like in order for you to build the muscle even stronger, you have to bust out whatever you learn from the repetitions. You have to bust out whatever you learn from the muscle memory or, or on on the muscle to to sort of improve on whatever. You know, sometimes you know. Sometimes you have all these tools in your back, but you never use it for a long time. You just forget they are there. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, and so my my hope is is that I re it helps me build my pattern recognition. So when I'm playing an actual game, I know what to do. Okay. So so it's like okay, I get in a game. It used to be maybe in a certain position, I didn't know what to do. But now I might say, oh, you could do this, this, this. And so that's why studying slow games almost makes you better at faster games because it gives you a bigger sort of repertoire of plans. But you're right, like I used to study playing blindfolded. In fact, when I was in college, I was a freshman in college, the Cornell chess club was not so good. And I remember one time, I mean, they were good. They were all rated players and stuff. But I remember one time I played five of them simultaneously while blindfolded. Like I used to be much better at blindfolded. And now I haven't played blindfolded since then. And so you're probably right, Jay. I probably should, uh, uh, bust it out. You know, it reminds me, it's like in poker. So when I used to play a lot of poker, I would talk with my poker friends 
and we would talk about different hands and you'd have to visualize. Now, it's not the kind of visualization that's in chess, but you'd have to say, okay, there are seven people at the table. Yeah. This, they, six of them have this hand, this hand, this hand. I have this hand. Um, this comes out, this comes out, this comes out. What do you do in that situation? And so we would talk over hands like that and you'd have to visualize everything. And that was very helpful talking over these hands with, or, or, or looking at hands in, in a book. Like there's a book right. by um, Gus Hansen, who's a great player called, I think it's called Hand by Hand. And, uh, Gus Hansen has a book called Hand by Hand. Who have taught? <laughs> yeah. So, and he, he's a, an extremely aggressive player. Somebody told me that his style doesn't work as well anymore. Because again, people learn styles and, and right. you have to grow up with the world. But you have to, I, I would have to visualize that. I wouldn't like deal out the cards. I'd have to visualize what he was saying. And that was helpful. So practicing visualization helps. But again, when I solve tactical problems, that's, a li- that's kind of visualization because you have to look like five, six moves ahead to find the solution and make yeah. sure you don't make mistakes. And there's a whole tree of possibilities in those six moves. But playing a full blindfold game would be a good challenge for me now. And on, on, on the different chess servers, the, chess, the different places online you can play chess, there's an option to play blindfolded. So I should probably oh, try that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe just practice it. Yeah, because like the, the reason why I brought this up is because like, you know, like I'm Asian, English is my second language. A lot of time, I mean, I read books, you know, I, I, I study, you know, like dictionary or books or whatever. And then, and then if I didn't use them, I just totally forgot I ever read that words until I read that words again. I'm like, oh yeah, I know these words, you know, so. Well, this is why repetition is so important because let's say, I mean, and Stephen Dubner who wrote Freakonomics and I, we once had this conversation on, uh, on a podcast when, when he was on, where how much, how much do you think, like I'll ask you, Jay, when you read a nonfiction book, Mm-hmm. Or even watch a YouTube video because a lot of people get their learning from that now. What percentage of the book do you think you remember? Oh, I I I I know that the, the answer is ten percent. I generally re- depends what type of book. I generally retain like maybe like fifteen percent to twenty percent because. Like, okay, I well like- that would be incredible if you because first off, ten percent is not the correct answer. It's more oh, like really? one or two percent. Oh, really? Turns out to be the answer. And so the important thing about repetition is, is maybe the second time I read it, I remember a different one or 2%. Maybe the third time I read it, now I read, I remember 5% because the dots are starting to connect. Like I realize how things start to connect in the book. So take a great book. And we've had Robert Greene on the podcast a a bunch of times. He wrote the 48 Laws of Power. He just wrote uh, the Daily Laws. He wrote the book Mastery. I find when I reread one of his books, I remember more each time I read it. And I'm I think I would have to reread The 48 Laws of Power 20 times to fully appreciate how great that book is. Or take Chuck Palahniuk's uh, book, Consider This. It's a book about writing. It's probably the best book ever about how to be a better writer. I would say that book was would require a good 20 readings before I fully get it. Because I only remember 1% of the time, but you, again, you start to build the pattern. Oh, this is a, this, his style of advice. Even more importantly for me, as a writer... There's a book of short stories written by a great writer who sadly passed away a few years ago, Dennis Johnson. It's my favorite writer ever. He's, if you, there's a book called The Writer's Bookshelf where he, uh, they ask famous authors who's on your bookshelf. He's the one author that who most commonly appears. In particular, this collection of short stories, his only collection of, no, his first collection of short stories, Jesus' Son, about like a drug addict guy. That book is on more bookshelves than any other book. I've read that book probably between two and 300 times, maybe more, because every time I read it, it gives me new insight into how to be a great writer. Uh, it's Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. And so repetition right. is, repetition's important. Studying, you know, other, other greats is important. But 
again, the most important thing is when I look at my own writing and try to figure out where I could have done better or when I watch the video of a comedy set or when I go over a chess game. Like, I'm looking at these games with Henrik right now and, man, I, I miss so much. I can't wait. Tomorrow morning I'm going to go over some of these games with Jesse and we'll see where I could have done better. But I really... Some places I played very good and was tricky, but some places I got lucky and some places I just played, you know, not so good. And I need to, I need to learn if I want to be better. I can't just ignore these games and just say, oh, they were just blitz games or, oh, I was nervous for the match. I have to see how I could, let's say the only reason I lost is because I was nervous for the match. Well, psychologically, I need to learn how to be less nervous. Now, that's not the only reason I lost, but every excuse is an opportunity to learn as well. Yeah. No excuses, but also, no. you know, sometimes it's good to have excuses. No too, excuses. You know? And I definitely feel the pain, although he, he won a hard fought match, four games to two. It was the, the final seconds of the last game, it was almost three games to three if I had pulled that one out, but he, he was a very tricky guy. He's a very tricky, sneaky guy. Right. Yeah. So now, now you played that. I guess I'm just excited when you're going to play the son, you know, Magnus Carlsen. Yeah. I don't know. I would say this. You know, several years ago, and this is on YouTube, I played Gary Kasparov, who has since become a a, a good friend of the, of me, and and his his wife's a good friend, and uh, we just went to a, a conference, the Human Rights, the Oslo Freedom Forum or Human Rights Foundation. I, I forgot the official name, but uh, went with him. But uh, we played a game, and he destroyed me, of course. And I would say now, looking at that game now, because I looked at that game a few weeks ago. I understand why I played so poorly. And at the time, I wasn't even curious why I played so poorly. So it's just a different attitude I have now about improvement in this one domain that's been part of my life ever since I was a kid. And that's, you know, how you take something like chess or, or art or music and, and make it have benefits in other areas of your life. Tell me, actually, I'll leave it to the listeners. Tell me if that's something you would be interested in. Like, let's say, oh, you always did gardening. How can you use gardening in other areas of life? Not even just in selling things, but I have found that chess has changed my life in so many ways since I was 16, 17 years old when I started playing in tournaments that it's my life would have been completely different. Even though I'm probably now not that much better than I was then, uh, it's, it's changed my life. And I only wish I had continued learning, but of course I learned other things. And right. I hope everybody enjoyed this podcast plus our extended outro and um let me know what's on your mind like tweet at me on twitter and and please uh subscribe to the podcast leave a, a good review uh share the podcast i really like feedback and and it really helps me a lot if you share this and and or review or subscribe or whatever and i i want to know that i should keep doing this sometimes jay and i are doing this in like a closet and and <laughs> We don't know who's out there. Jay's in a closet. And actually, I'm in a closet too. <laughs> We're in two separate closets. So, but they well, have a lot of different meanings, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I used to actually do this out of a closet when I first started. Now it just feels like a closet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I heard all those episodes. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that you came to the studio. I'm so glad that I'd be on board and then just turn your, you know, your podcast, you know, uh, around, you know? Yeah. You've gone from audio engineer to full fledged producer. So. <laughs> You. You've been doing self-improvement yourself. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and you do a All great right. job. Uh, Jay <laughs> just booked, I'll look at my calendar and suddenly there'll be Eric Schmidt, the ex-CEO of Google, is coming out next week. There's another coincidence there too. So there's three authors. It's Eric Schmidt, Henry Kissinger, 
and a computer scientist author named Daniel Huttenlocker. So the coincidence is he's like a huge computer science guy now. He's like, I don't know, chairman of something at Stanford or MIT and chairman of the John D. Rockefeller Foundation and blah, blah, blah. Well, he was, when I, my last year of undergrad, I majored in computer science, was his first year as an assistant professor. Oh. So there's just a weird coincidence in that, in that book. But Do you know him in person? Yeah, yeah. So, oh. um, but he probably wouldn't remember me. I was undergrad and I didn't, he was teaching computer vision, which I guess is his connection to the AI world. But, right. I, and I didn't take computer vision. But uh, in any case, Jay just puts these amazing guests like on the calendar and somehow books them. So thank you, Jay. And All right, thank you. And once again, thanks to Henrik for coming on and congratulations to him. And good luck to Magnus on his upcoming world championship match. All right, thank you. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 